You are listening to a series called Shadows, Discovering Christ Through the Old Testament from the Axis Church in downtown Nashville. For more audio and other resources, visit theaxischurch.org. Welcome and good morning. I'm Jeremy, one of the pastors here at the Axis, and I'm grateful to have this time with you today. Thanks for being here. Uh, we're in week six of our 10-week series called Shadows as we explore and discover Christ in the Old Testament. As we get going this morning, uh, <clears throat> just wanted to say uh, to Derek Hazlett and to Dave Hoffman and to Don Logan, what a joy it is to be under your care um, as the elders and pastors of the Axis Church. Um, you men are beloved friends and my life is much better and safer because you guys are my pastors. And it is a joy and honor to follow you guys and to be cared by y'all, cared for by y'all and prayed for by you guys and your families. Um, such a rich blessing. I can't think of, of any other men, any other pastors that I'd rather have over me running side by side this race as we shepherd here. So thank you, Dave. Thank you, Don. Thank you, Derek, so much. I love you guys. And church, we're honored and blessed to have these men as our pastors. Um, it really is a gift. These men are better than who you think they are. Um, if you admire them for what little bit you know of them, um, you don't even understand um, the, the caliber and quality of men these guys are and their families, truly. Thank you all. I feel that all the time, um, all the time. I don't always say it because it would <laughs> become redundant in a way, but I feel like saying that every time I get up here um, because that's what I feel when I say that I'm just one of the pastors here um, is knowing that there's three much better men um, that I get to be led by and serve with. Um, so it's a joy. Thank you all. Um, so uh, go ahead and turn to Exodus chapter one if you haven't already done so. Exodus chapter 1, it's at the beginning. You've got the beginning of Genesis, and then you've got Exodus. It's the second book of the Bible there. And if you don't have a Bible, uh, they're scattered around the room under the seats in front of you. Uh, unless you're on the front row, then you just have to deal with it. Um, but uh, there's, if you don't have a Bible, these are hardback Bibles. Uh, they're nice. Write your name in it and uh, take it. Let it be yours. And if you have a Bible that's your own already and you haven't written your name in it, there's a pen close by. Write your name in your Bible. It's not heresy to do that. Uh, I don't like finding Bibles that I don't know who belong to, and then they just kind of get lost forever and end up at goodwill. And we want you to be able to have your Bible. So if you haven't already done that, write your name in the front so that if and when you happen to leave the, your most prized possession, we want to make sure it gets back to the owner. Well, as we begin, um, I want us to start with an understanding of the Old Testament as we're looking to discover Christ in the Old Testament pages. Um, you see, the Bible is, is one big book. It's made up of 66 books of two different testaments, old and new. Yet within those pages of different stories, uh, different books, different authors, there's really one supreme author who is God himself penned through man. It's his message to us. And it makes up one big story in four significant acts. It's creation, fall, redemption, recreation. What this means in part is that regardless of what page or verse you're coming across in all of the Bible, 
it's going to fit in one or more of those four acts. Creation, fall, when we sin in the garden, Adam and Eve, redemption, recreation. And it's really all about God's movement to mankind to save man and woman, to save humanity from their sin to himself for their joy and his glory. He does this out of love. So what this means is that we find the Christ, the Messiah, we find Jesus long before Matthew in the New Testament. What this means is that there is shadows, there's types, there's connections, there's, um, there are appetizers, glimpses, there are tastes and, and pictures of Christ in the Old Testament where we're learning more about the Redeemer and Rescuer who's going to come and make things perfectly right again. Their shadows in the Old Testament pointing to the substance who is Christ Jesus the Lord, okay? So they're there to admire. We can look in the Old Testament and find a lot of folks to admire. Men and women both find that, man, we admire their faith. We admire their obedience. We admire the tenacity that they followed Jesus or followed the Lord, followed God um, through their life as they heard from him. But they're not there just for us to admire. They're there as shadows pointing to the one who we should admire and worship and imitate and model the one that they were looking to, all right? So it's lifting our eyes further than just the Old Testament heroes to the true hero of the Bible, the better hero who acted for us. So today we're gonna continue this by looking at Moses and the Exodus. We're looking at the greater Moses, we're looking at the greater Exodus. So I wanna give us a, a quick summary flyover uh, from Abraham all the way up to Moses, okay? So you remember Abraham and Isaac, Pastor Don taught us about that, um, and the ram caught in the thicket, uh, the, the, the one, you know, Father Abraham promised the God's covenant with him that he would make a people, and he's like, I'm old, and he gave him a son, Isaac, um, and then he asked him to lay Isaac before the Lord, right, even to the point of death, and yet there was a shadow of Christ, the ram caught in a thicket, Christ Jesus wearing the thorns, the thicket, himself, the Lamb of God who would take away the sin of the world. We saw shadows there. Well, then <clears throat> Abraham gave birth to Isaac, gave birth to Jacob. Jacob is also referred to as Israel. So Jacob, Israel had 12 sons, hence the 12 tribes of what? Israel, yeah, 12 tribes of Israel. Well, one of his kids, Joseph, was a favored one of the father. Um, and so his brothers, his other brothers, they, they, they're jealous of him. They're envious of the favor that he had. And so they take Joseph and they, they fake his death to convince the dad to stop looking for him. He's, he's dead. Um, but they actually sold him as a slave. Big, long story, complicated, complex story made short. Joseph ends up in Egypt. He ends up being second in command in Egypt, which was the powerhouse civilization at the time second in command only under Pharaoh. Well, the Lord told Joseph through a vision, through a dream that there was gonna be a famine. So he told Egypt being second in command, we're gonna store up supplies and food the next seven years because there's gonna be a long seven year famine and we're gonna to need to be ready. Well, he predicted this, which caused even more people to believe Joseph. But what happened is Joseph's family who left him for dead and sold him as a slave, they, just like everybody else in the Middle East and Africa, they were suffering through this famine. And so they come to Egypt who had all these supplies because of the Lord revealing this to Joseph. They all come there to buy supplies and then go back home. Well, his family shows up. Joseph's brothers, 
that betrayed him show up getting supplies. They don't recognize him. They don't even know if he's alive. He recognizes them. Again, long, complicated family drama story made short. He forgives them and moves them to Egypt to care for them, right? Leveraging his position for his family's good. And then you can see in Exodus chapter one, Israel flourishes and begins to multiply. Look at Exodus chapter one, starting in verse one. These are the names of the sons of Israel or Jacob who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household. We had Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, Benjamin, Dan, Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All these are the descendants of Jacob. 70 persons in total moved to Egypt. Joseph was already in Egypt, right? But then Joseph died and all his brothers and all that generation. But the people of Israel or the, the children of Israel, the sons of Jacob and their families were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. So as time moves on, Joseph and the uh, favor of, from Pharaoh has been forgotten. Look in Exodus 1 verse 8. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, behold, the people of Israel, too many, too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they're gonna join our enemies and really fight us from within as our other enemies fight us on the outside and they're gonna escape from the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over the children of Israel to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built the children of Israel as slaves. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithom, Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, and this is true of the Christian church. This is true of, of the persecuted church. It purifies it, it strengthens it. It's remarkable. Just like the Christian church, the people of Israel, the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and the more they spread abroad and the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. And the very graphic vocabulary in the next two verses, they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. So Israel is oppressed. Egypt's Pharaoh, their leader, he was intimidated by their strength and their number, the fearful of the Israelites' growing size. So he orders that all newborn boys be thrown into the Nile River to their death. Well, a Levite woman saves her baby. At three months old, she sets him adrift in the Nile River in a large basket layered in pitch, that asphalt tar that lined the ark that we looked at. Pharaoh's daughter finds this child, names him Moses, and raises him as her own son. As Moses grows up in Pharaoh's home, he begins to learn of his origins. He's not ignorant of, of what his story was. He's aware that he's a Hebrew. He's aware that he's an Israelite a son of Israel. One day, as Moses is grown around the age of 40, he sees an Egyptian taskmaster beating a Hebrew slave, beating an Israelite. His heart goes out to him. That's his people. Moses kills this Egyptian taskmaster, buries him in the sand. 
Others saw Moses do this. Word gets around. And so out of fear, Moses runs away and he runs to Midian. He falls in love with a woman named Zipporah, the daughter of a Midianite priest named Jethro. In Exodus 2, look in Exodus 2, verse 23. It says, during those many days, the king of Egypt died and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery. And they cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. And I love, love these four things that God does here in the next two verses. And God heard their groaning. God remembered his covenant that he made with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And God saw the people of Israel and God knew what had to happen. God takes action. God calls Moses through a pretty radical experience of the burning bush, this God inhabiting this bush in a flame, not consuming or burning the, fire, the, 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 the bush, the tree, but yet still burning. He takes off his shoes, he's on holy ground. You might be familiar with that. And through this, he tells Moses, to return to Egypt, to lead the Hebrews to Canaan, the land that was promised to Abraham. And through all this, I mean, sold as a slave, second in command, famine, family comes in, you know, you know the, the death of the firstborn as they, as they multiply, this one rescued, brought out of the, the river, brought into Pharaoh's palace, raised there, sees this Hebrew being tortured, kills him, buries him, runs away, falls in love, gets called by God through this burning bush. I mean, it's pretty radical. It's like all over the place. Yet in God's eyes, his plan is being accomplished perfectly. And so it is with us. Our lives might look all scattered. It's like, God, where are you? This, this is crazy. This is nuts. It's God making a perfectly straight line through your story. One day, by grace, we might be able to see that. But in his eyes, this is how it's happening. This is how your life is too. Look in Exodus chapter three and verse seven. Then the Lord said, I have surely, he, he's echoing what we just heard about God uh, hearing, remembering, seeing, and knowing. Then God said, surely I have seen the affliction of, of my people who are in Egypt. I have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. And I know their sufferings. I'm not ignorant, I'm aware. And so it is true for you, friend. In the midst of their slavery, he knew what was happening. He knew what was going on through their suffering. So it is for you. He says, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hands of the Egyptians, to bring them up out of that land to a good land, a broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey. Through much struggle, through a lot of doubt, through a lot of insecurities, Moses returns to Egypt but he fails to convince Pharaoh to release God's people, the Israelites. Well, then Moses confronts Pharaoh again, this time with powerful signs and miracles, but he does not release God's people. Instead, following God in obedience, asking Pharaoh to free God's people, I'm obeying, I'm doing what God's telling me to do here. Instead of freeing them, because Moses showed up, things get worse. Pharaoh increases their burdens. So it is as you pursue Jesus in obedience. As you pursue Jesus in obedience, things often don't get easier. Things get more difficult. 
but that doesn't mean you're doing it wrong. Moses was obeying God. This was part of his plan. Even though he speaks and obeys, the response of Pharaoh is, I'm going to make their work even more difficult because you've come back in here asking me to free the people. The confusion Moses had to have. The oppression grows. And you see in Exodus chapter five, if you want to follow there, Exodus chapter five and verse 10. So the taskmasters and the foremen of the people went out and said to the people, thus says Pharaoh, I will not give you straw. You go and get your straw yourselves wherever you can find it, but your work will not be reduced in the least. So the people were scattered throughout all the land of Egypt to gather stubble for straw. The taskmasters were urgent saying, complete your work your daily task each day, as when there was straw. And the foremen of the people of Israel, whom Pharaoh's taskmasters had set over them, were beaten. And they were asked, as they're being beaten, why have you not done all your task of making bricks today and yesterday, as in the past? Then through Moses, God sends the Egyptians and all those around the area 10 terrible plagues as a means of breaking them down to freeing the people of Israel. The first plague, water turned into blood. All the fresh water turned into blood. Fish dying, smells awful. Plague number two was frogs, and it wasn't like, oh, it's a cute little tree frog. Look at that, it's on the pot next to the front door. I mean, frogs everywhere, right? It's not fun. I love frogs. That would not be fun, okay? Plagues number three and four, biting insects like lice and noceums, if you're from Charleston and Savannah. Awful, I hate this thing. But sort of things like that. And then flies everywhere. Plague number five and six, livestock disease causing death of livestock and boils breaking out on the flesh of every man and woman, boy and girl. Plague number seven was fiery hail coming down from the sky. Plague number eight, locusts devouring anything green, just all over the place. Plague number nine, darkness. Darkness so much so as recorded in history that you could not see your hand in front of your very face. Darkness in the middle of the day for days. Plague number 10, the death of the firstborn, which we're gonna look at next Sunday. It's where we get Passover from, which is a shadow that we'll open up next week. Well, during this, Pharaoh's on sundays during this plague. And so finally, Pharaoh allows Moses to take the Israelites out of bondage, out of Egypt, wherever it is they need to go to go worship. Leave me alone. You see that in Exodus chapter 12, if you wanna turn there. Exodus chapter 12 and verse 31. Then he summoned Moses and Aaron by night. So he called them this time. They were showing up before. Now he's reaching out to them and saying, up, go out from among us, from among my people, both you, and the people of Israel, and go serve the Lord as you have said you want to go do. Take your flocks, take your herds, as you've said, and be gone. And then strangely, and bless me also. Now, it's like, there's something powerful going on. <laughs> and then Exodus 13 and 3, then Moses said to the people, and we're going to do this together, Christians in the room, in just a few moments. We're going to share in communion. And it's really the essence of what Moses tells the children of Israel here. It's what Jesus said when he gave the first communion. Remember me. He says, remember this day in which you came out of Egypt, out of the house of oppression and slavery, for by a strong hand, 
the Lord brought you out from this place. This was not your doing. The strong hand of the Lord delivered you. And we see this through Christ's work, which is where we're going today. Because Jesus is the greater Moses, and Jesus provides the greater Exodus. Today we see Moses as a type of Christ. He's an appetizer to the real thing, a shadow of the substance of Christ. Jesus is truer and greater than Moses. If you were to ask any ancient children of Israel who their spiritual hero was, almost everyone would say Moses. For them, he was the hero of all heroes, certainly the hero of the Old Testament. The author of Hebrews in the New Testament, reflecting back on Moses, said in Hebrews 3.5, Moses was faithful in all God's house. He was also Israel's greatest prophet. He was admired deeply. But even still, because we now have the New Testament, we have the testimony of Jesus and the other New Testament writings, we know that Moses, as great as he was, was just a shadow pointing forward to Christ. Consider what the author of Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter three, starting in verse one. Therefore, holy brothers, family of God, you who share in a heavenly calling. He's talking to Christians, he's talking to you. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our faith and confession, who was faithful to him, who appointed him, God, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. As much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. It's one thing to admire a house. It's another thing to admire the architect who designed such a home. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant of God to testify to the things that were to be spoken later but Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. Moses was a servant, Jesus was a son. And we are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. So we see now Moses foreshadowing Christ Jesus. Jesus is the one who is the truer and greater Moses, one who is counted as worthy of more glory than Moses. And the story of, uh, of, of this, this exodus, the, the context around this to kind of set it up is like God's people were enslaved, okay? They were like nowhere close to the promised land that he told Abraham was gonna be theirs. And on top of this, they haven't heard a voice, a prophet from God for 400 years. So it's understandable that they long to hear from him again. It's like they're off his radar. It's like they've completely been forgotten. They're probably wondering, does God exist? Does God care? Have we messed up things to the point where he is just like gone and disinterested in us? Will he deliver us? Does he care to deliver us? Is he gonna keep his promise to Abraham? Did we hear that right? Did we misunderstand something throughout history that he was actually gonna save his people and make the children of Abraham prosperous and be rescued and favored. Maybe we've messed up to the point where we're disqualified from all this. I mean, reminiscing over the days from their patriarch Abraham, they longed for the Lord to speak to them as he spoke through Abraham, through Isaac, through Jacob, time and time again. See, while 
Moses, as a prophet, brought the truth and the word of God. Jesus Christ embodied that truth. Moses spoke, Jesus embodied. In fact, in John chapter one, John the apostle tells us that Jesus is the eternal word who was with God, who was indeed God. Now, while Moses was the prophet who brought the words of God to the people of God, Jesus himself is the eternal word who was sent from heaven to save sinners, making them sons and daughters of God. Moses spoke the words of God, Jesus was God. And he's called the word because he himself is God's message. It's like Jesus was and is everything God wanted to say to the world all wrapped up in a person. And we see him 2000 years ago. The personal work of Jesus is God telling you, God telling mankind, I love you. I'm aware. I know. I'm aware. I'm going to forgive you. I want you to be with me. Trust me. And I know that today, because of our sin, because of the fall, struggle and death are our taskmasters. Sickness disease weigh heavy on so many of us. Depression, anxiety, all these things afflict heavy burdens. We're oppressed, condemned. In our sin, we're trapped, we're destroyed, driven to despair. We feel forsaken and hopeless. We're slaves to sin. We're born this way. We're in bondage to sin. We can't help this. We're sinners thoroughly, like through and through. We're pretty much professionals at sinning. Like we can't, we can't help but sin. It's instinctual to us. It is what comes easiest and most natural. But that doesn't mean it's right. Being sinners, there are times when we sin and we don't even mean to. We just stumble into it. And, and often we can be surprised by our sin. We'll be caught up in a moment and it's like, we're so proud all of a sudden. Like it's like, where does that come from? Like, who do I actually think I, I'm not that important? Why, what is wrong with me, right? It's like our prejudice, like racism, prejudice, like throwing stereotypes, like where does this, why am I like this? Revenge, driven by jealousy, envy, like being hurt, wanting to hurt back, getting even, trying to get a one step ahead of somebody. What is, where is this coming from? my selfishness. Like, why do I find it so difficult to be generous and give freely? I'm driven to such control. I'm driven to such selfishness. And being a sinner, there's times where we just unconsciously drift into sin, but there's also other times as sinners, and you know this is true if you're honest with yourself, we intentionally choose to sin. We're caught up in something, so we lie. And then we have to sit back and think strategically the lies that need to come to cover that lie, to keep us from getting found out. You know you do this. We weren't taught this. This comes natural. That doesn't mean it's right. We look at pornography, committing multiple emotional affairs with others, adultery within our hearts. And some go even so far as to plan sexual encounters that take forethought, it's premeditated. We choose to sin. We know it's wrong, yet we steal, and we take what's not ours, and we hide. We cheat. We receive something we did not earn. We cheat. 
We create idols in our hearts and we worship them and we give our heart and soul to them. And this can be food. This can be fame. We'll manipulate to get money. We work so hard to be first and fast. We wanna be, we wanna have some sort of power over other people, some sort of uh, higher position, some prominence. We're driven to look a certain way in the mirror, to perform the right way on the field. We desire, particularly in Nashville, to dazzle people on stage and be seen as the girl, the guy who has it all together. I mean, we are driven. We're, we're in perpetual bondage to sin. Even in our righteousness, even in our desire to live godly lives, there can be sin. In a church culture, trying to look like you've got it all together, to say all the right things, to be available, to serve all the right ways so that I can be noticed by the right spiritual leaders so that I can be granted favor in the church. Sin through pursuing righteousness. The motives for us trying to live a certain way, a godly life needs to be addressed with the gospel. I mean, we're such sinners. We need to be delivered from this. We need to be rescued from this, from this oppression and bondage. After 400 years of silence in between Malachi or Matthew, and Matthew, or if you wanna call it Malachi, it's kind of fun, between <laughs> Malachi and Matthew, the intertestamental period, 400 years of silence, no voice before the birth of Christ. And God speaks and all creation rejoices. God finally sends the savior to his world for his people. It's great news, friend, that Jesus didn't come for the first, the fast, and the famous, for those who know how to keep it all together. Jesus came, and this is good news, for failures. He came for clumsy people who no matter how hard they try, they can't keep it together. He came for disappointments and reprobates. In Luke chapter 19 and verse 10, it says that Jesus came to seek and save the lost, not the best, the lost. Earlier in Luke, in chapter five and verse 31, Jesus speaks himself and says, those who are well have no need of a doctor, no need of a physician, but those who are sick, sick. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Repentance is turning to Jesus to find what I thought could be found elsewhere. Repentance is turning to Jesus to find what I thought could be found elsewhere. And elsewhere, this is where we go to find fulfillment, satisfaction, meaning, worth, identity, where we go to find the answer to the question, do I matter, am I important? We run elsewhere to find these things all the time. Repentance is turning to Jesus to find what you thought could be found elsewhere. Jesus came for the sick. He came for the lost. He came for sinners. If you think you're all right, you don't identify as a sinner in need of grace and salvation, he didn't come for you. If you see yourself as clumsy, can't keep it together, a sinner, he came for you. Do you see yourself as a reprobate in need of pardon? Is this how you see yourself? Or do you just see yourself as just needing a little bit of improvement? Or is Jesus a means to your, to your end of, of something personal? 
of this world? Or do you see him as savior? Do you see yourself as sick in need of a doctor, a really good doctor? Do you see yourself as lost, needing to be found and rescued? Do you see yourself as a failure? Do you see yourself as a convicted felon in need of a miracle? Do you see yourself as a sinner in need of a savior? You'll never ever go to see a doctor unless you're thoroughly convinced that you're sick. You will never see Jesus as beautiful until you're convinced that you're a sinner and that your sin is gross. Your sin is ultimately against God, the creator of all things. Your sin is ultimately against God, the great judge and ruler over everything. And your sin has, has, against God has broken your chances of ever knowing God personally. And that personal relationship is what you desire more than anything else in the world. It's behind every craving and longing, though you might not identify it as that, though you might not see it as that. It's true, my friend. And the good news of the gospel of Christ that's found in the Holy Bible is that Jesus came to repair that relationship, to satisfy your deepest longing. He came to deal with your sickness, your sin, your lostness, your failures, and restore you back to your creator and father. He lived perfectly the life that's required to be lived to be in relationship with God. He did this as your representative, his life in exchange for your life. He died the death that you deserve as your substitute, taking your place, bearing the weight of God's judgment towards your sin and towards yourself. He took that upon his own shoulders on the cross. He received the undiluted, pure wrath of God that you deserve forever so that you would never have to experience that at all. By faith in this, it results in you being made righteous, you being justified. This faith in this is your justification. Just as if you've never sinned and just as if you have always obeyed every second of your life. Now, because of Christ's work and faith in him, you're not just all right. You're not just gonna skim by. You are perfect blameless, holy, pure, without sin. On the cross, Jesus cried right before he died. He says, it is what? Finished. Literally, it's paid in full. It has been completely, fully, and thoroughly accomplished. Jesus died for you. Jesus suffered as you. He was punished in your place. He was alone in isolation for you. He took care of all that was needed so that you would no longer be in need. He beat death for you, killing death in the death of death. But do you believe this? Do you believe this? God heard, God remembered his covenant. God saw his people and he knew what had to be done. In the story of Moses, Egypt, his people and the Exodus, he responded to the suffering of his people by sending Moses. Friend, God responds to your suffering and sin and death by sending himself. Jesus, the son of God, he came to us to deliver us completely and fully, leading us out of the greater Egypt, which is sin, death, and disease, in 
through the greater exodus, which is being delivered into the very presence of God. Jesus being the greater Moses, the greater deliverer, the greater representative, the greater spokesman, the greater prophet, the greater, greater priest, the, the greater, greater king. Just as Moses led God's people out of oppression, out of slavery, out of injustice in Egypt, Jesus has come as the greater Moses to lead God's people from the eternal oppression to sin and slavery to sin and death, giving you life eternally in paradise, not merely to escape and then fall back into bondage if you don't keep all things together, but he has promised to safely, securely provide protection for you so that you can't mess it up, so that you will always have the hope of being with him and the certainty of life forever with him in paradise because he wants to, not because of anything that we've done. The only thing we do is bring up the need to be rescued. That's all we provide. We provide the problem. That's it. He's the solution. And we don't deserve that. He didn't deliver us to leave us trapped wandering in a desert. Jesus delivered us to be present with God in paradise forever. No more sin. No more discomfort. No more hate, no more injustice, no more oppression, no more sickness, no more crime, no more racism, no more pain, no more tears, no more anxiety, no more panic attacks, no more depression, abuse, silly idols, no more struggle to repent and confess, no more darkness, no more shame, no more guilt, no more death, no more. I saw a new heaven and a new earth in Revelation 21. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, paradise, coming down from heaven, from God, prepared as a bride, adorned and ready for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne of all creation saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. If you're one who writes in your Bibles, circle that word with. That togetherness, that union is powerful. And it's gonna come up again, hold on. He will dwell with, there's another one, with them. They will be his people and God himself will be, there it is, with them as their God. And he doesn't throw you a box of Kleenexes. He will wipe away every tear from your eye. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning or crying or pain anymore for the former things have passed away. We experience mourning, crying, and pain. Christian, you experience mourning, crying, and pain. Those who aren't Christians yet in the room, you experience mourning, crying, and pain. And it's not comfortable. You don't like it, do you? No, we don't. You know why? It's not part of our original nature. These things have been invited in post-creation by our sin. 
And all of us struggle with this. We know it's not the way it should be when we're mourning, crying, and in pain. We want this fixed. We want this removed. I don't like living like this, right? You weren't supposed to live like that. And so in every craving, when you're in the experience of suffering and discomfort, mourning, pain, you're crying out for heaven. You're crying out, I want things like they used to be in the garden before we mess things up. I want this so bad. I, how do we get back there? That's what you're experiencing every time you experience any level of suffering. Your heart, God has knit it into you as, as who you are in his image to be with him, to be with him forever. And our sin totally bots that. But he's come back to make it better again. So every time you suffer, you're calling out for the garden. You're calling out for the new heavens. You're calling out for the new Jerusalem. You're calling out for perfect paradise with God. And the only way you get it is through Christ Jesus and faith in him. But guess what? You get it through Christ Jesus and faith in him. It's for everybody. It's for you. If you would humble yourself and believe him. What a promise. What a hope we have in Christ. He will return and he's gonna make things better. He's gonna undo all that has made us sad. He's gonna reverse the curse and all that, brought the cur all that the curse brought along with it. He's gonna make it untrue. We've got so much to look forward to. We've got so much to look forward to. Magnificent meaning and purpose through our suffering. Much more in the life to come all because of Jesus. But do you believe Jesus? You've got to. If you don't believe Christ, for those who aren't Christians yet, you're condemned before God. You're in the very path of his wrath and you will suffer forever in a place called hell, apart from all that is good. All that, it, as it's described through scripture, hell is a place, the big idea, you don't wanna be there. That's the big idea. That it's used allegorically, metaphorically. This all, it's painting a picture that says, this is what we deserve, but there's a way out of this. You don't have to experience it and you shouldn't want it, okay? Hence the gospel comes, not just to rescue us out of hell, most importantly, to rescue us back into relationship with God. It's much more what you're saved to than what you're saved from. Don't be saved out of fear of hell. Look to Christ and receive salvation out of faith in getting God back in your life. Those who aren't Christians yet, call out to God and tell him you believe. Tell him that you want to believe. Ask him to teach you to believe. Tell him you, you find it difficult to believe this. That's what my mom did. As a 19-year-old at Appalachian State University, dropped to her knees in her dorm, said, God, this makes no sense to me. And I don't even know if you want to save me. I don't even know if that's possible. I don't even know if I need to be saved. But if you want to do it, do your thing. Here I am. Game on. She became a Christian that night. But she was honest about her unbelief. Be honest. Christian, believe this. Every time you hear the gospel, it's a call to believe. Every time. To be, rem to be reminded, to remember. Ask God for faith in your doubting. When you go through suffering, you doubt his goodness. You doubt his nearness. You doubt his concern. Ask God for faith as you mourn, as you cry, as you suffer through this life. Ask him for help. Ask him for grit in your godliness, tenacity in your pursuit of holiness. Ask him for his presence, his nearness. I mean, do you see how much you're cared and loved? 
Do you see what you had to look forward to? Let me, let me end with this. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 8, we are afflicted in every way. Think about the children of Israel and their afflictions, their oppression. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. We might be perplexed, but not driven to despair. There may be seasons of persecution, but in the midst of it, tell yourself, I'm not forsaken. It feels like it, but I know I'm not forsaken. I'm struck down, but I'm not destroyed. We know that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us into his presence so we do not lose heart. We know what's before us. Now, though our outer self is wasting away, and if you're over 40, you're getting it, right? Our outer self is, but our inner self, what lives forever, the part of who we actually are is being renewed day by day. Think about that. As you're experiencing the breakdown of your body physically, be encouraged. Your spirit is growing as your body is wasting. What's within that truly matters is gaining strength as you're losing strength day by day. Regardless of what it is that you're going through, in the big scope of things, it's a light and momentary affliction in the big picture for this light momentary affliction is actually working to prepare for us an eternal weight of glory that I can't describe. It's beyond all comparison. As we look, not to the things that are seen, lift your eyes higher than this, my friend, to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. They last forever. Be encouraged. As a means of reminding us of the finished work on our behalf, we're going to do what Moses told the children, to remember your rescue from slavery with a strong hand. You've been delivered. This is what we do during communion. We remember our rescue of Jesus's work on our behalf. He gave this idea of communion, the Lord's table, the Lord's supper, supper the sacrament of this to his disciples the night of his arrest before he was wrongfully accused, arrested, condemned, killed on a cross. He grabbed bread and he grabbed juice. He said that the bread represented his, his life, his body, in exchange for our life. He said that the red liquid, the wine, was symbolic of the blood that he shed as he gave up his own life as a sacrifice for our salvation. And so today, we who are Christians, we take this bread and dip it into the juice or the wine, remembering what Jesus has accomplished for us. Remembering how God has come to us to rescue us out of the Egypt of sin and death, if you will, to bring about the greater exodus. So I ask that you think through these things, friend. Christian, as you think through things like we discussed today, your faith is strengthened. You become more fun in life and fearless in life as you think on these things. And those who aren't Christians yet, thinking on these things is how you become a Christian. Don't ignore these things. Lean in on these things. Talk about these things with others. Remember, we're gonna have servers on either side of the stage and self-serve stations in the back two corners. Let's pray as we come to the table. These are the gifts of God for the people of God. And we proclaim the mystery of the Christian faith that Christ has come into the world, that he's lived perfectly as us, that he's died in our place as our substitute, that he's risen as the firstborn of all creation and that Christ will come again. Thanks be to God 
through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Now may the blessing of our triune God Almighty, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit be on this time of remembering, this time of worshiping, this time of reflecting, this time of communion. Father, Son, and Spirit, remain with us always as you have promised, forever and ever. Amen. Christian, when you're ready, please come and take, remembering your rescue and what Christ has done. You can come when you're ready.